Let your voice be heard now. 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 866-997-4748. 866-997-4748. The Michelangelo Ciarelli Show. In a few minutes, I'm going to be speaking to Stuart Stevens, the author of a book called It Was All a Lie. And it really was all a lie. (laughs) Uh, He's talking about being a Republican strategist for many years and helping Republicans win elections all across the country. And he realized that the Republican Party became the party of Donald Trump, but not that Donald Trump has hijacked the party. He's very clear about that. He doesn't see the Republican Party as having been taken over by Donald Trump. He sees the Republican Party as having always been Donald Trump, as having always had this message, and as having laid the groundwork for Donald Trump to walk in and be president. And I think that's a very different and more honest assessment of what we have seen from some Republicans. You know, even those who might be honest right now about Donald Trump becoming president have said that, you know, he took over the party and they've got to somehow wrestle it back from him. But Stuart Stevens believes, no, this is the party it's always been. And he was a strategist for decades working in the Republican Party, and he used racism, showed how it worked uh, in politics, was in the DNA of the Republican Party, and gives a real insider account of the hypocrisy of the party's claim to you know, espouse family values. And Stuart Stevens, the author of It Was a Lawl a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump, joins me right now. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. A really fascinating and interesting book, and uh, it really gives an inside look at a lot of what the Republican Party has done for many years. And uh, what I was struck by uh, was, unlike some Republicans who today might admit, and you can't even get a few of them to admit this, right, that Donald Trump has taken over their party, Uh, you say, no, he did not take over the party. This is the party. This is what the party has always been. He simply come in to a party that, that always has had Donald Trump and what he believes in its DNA. Talk a little bit about that. Well, look, I think if you look at the history of the party, and, and really the, the way what prompted me to write this book was like looking at the party and saying, how did this happen? Um, and 
uh, I went through a period where I said this isn't really the Republican Party, but then I don't really know how you sustain that when he's head of the Republican Party and he's wildly popular in the Republican Party. And it's a true statement. The Republican Party is the party that endorses Roy Moore and attacks John Bolton. Um, so I went back and I looked at the post-World War II history of the party. And it's clear that there had always been these two different strains of the party. Um, it, it, one was Joe McCarthy. One was uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And that that sort of played itself out. Um, there were a lot of us who thought that we, um, who were involved in the George Bush campaign in 99, we, we always assumed that we were the dominant gene of the party. And uh, that there was a recessive gene that was dark, but um, it turns out we were wrong. We were the recessive gene, and the dominant gene is the part that's Donald Trump. Talk about your career um, getting into um, being a political strategist. You, you began on the campaign of John Henson, who ran for Congress in Mississippi, and immediately the name popped out for me because I remember uh, he had eventually resigned because he was gay and closeted and had been involved in sex scandals that at that time, certainly in the Republican Party, uh, destroyed his career. He then later became uh, more of an activist, uh, died in 1995 uh, from AIDS. Um, at that time, you, um, of course, before he w he wasn't open about it, but you uh, helped his campaign and you realized back then that using race uh, was a potent uh, force in the Republican Party. Yeah, John is really a tragic figure. Um, I, I grew up in Mississippi, as did John. Um, and I was a page in the uh, congressman's office where he was chief of staff. And we got to be friends. He's a very good guy. Um, and when that uh, congressman then ran for the Senate, John ran for his seat. Now, he was running against Senator Stennis' son, who was a powerful figure in Mississippi. No one thought he could win. Um, and I was in film school, and he called me up and said, I can't afford to hire anybody. You should make commercials for me. I said, well, that's great, John, but I don't know how to make commercials. I used to make these stupid little films. And he said, well, that doesn't matter. And so I made commercials for him, and we won. Really just because, well, John was a good candidate, but also he was the right person at the right time. And in that race, there was a, a white Republican, John Henson, a white Democrat, and a, a black independent candidate. And what quickly became apparent was 90-plus percent of African Americans were either going to vote for the Democrat or they're going to vote for the black independent. So I, I made what I thought at the time was a very clever spot. It was sort of like a League of Women Voters voter ID spot, uh, voter information spot, where we just made an advertisement that had a picture of uh, John Henson, a picture of the Democrat, and a picture of the uh, African-American independent. Didn't say anything disparaging about him, um, but it served the purpose of informing African-Americans who might not have been aware of the fact that there was an African-American in the race uh, that there was. Now, at the end of the day, John won with 51%, so maybe it wasn't necessary, but still, it was uh, an early and uh, sort of immutable uh, lesson that uh, race is the key in which much of our politics is played. 
Right. It was an ad that that actually didn't demonize uh, the candidate. It actually talked about the the history he would make, that if he were elected, he would become the first African-American. But your goal was to actually cleave off black voters from the Republican, um, cleave off black voters from the senator's son. Right. Uh, Which obviously was your first... um, awareness of how race can be used in these uh, elections. You went on to then work on uh, many other campaigns, and as you mentioned, um, the Bush campaign as well. How were these things discussed when they would discuss issues? Because you talk about all of the values of the party, um, Mm -hmm. a strong stance against Russia, family values, uh, all of the things that we now see Republicans don't care about at all. How were these things discussed, and how did people truly believe that's what they were fighting for? Well, look, at, as I said in the book, I sort of feel like the guy who was working for Bernie Madoff who actually thought we were beating the market. Um, it's very strange. Uh, the, the people I worked with, uh, we did believe this. Uh, it wasn't a wink and a nod. Um, we we thought character counts. I mean, I, I worked for Bob Dole against Bill Clinton. Um, all the stuff that was written by uh, Republicans about Bill Clinton. I mean, William Bennett wrote these these beautiful passages about the importance of culture in a uh, society and character in a society and in a presidential uh, office. We be, we believed this, um, and and what I really had to come to grips with in this is how do you abandon deeply held beliefs in three or four years? And the only conclusion I could come to is that the majority of the party didn't believe this, because I don't really think you abandon beliefs. I just think it means you didn't deeply hold them. Um, and now it's with Trump. It's not that we've sort of forgotten these things. It's we're actively against these things. We're the character doesn't count party. We're the pro-Putin party. We're the anti-free trade party. We're the anti-personal responsibility party. Um, and I, I just don't think we've seen anything like it in our modern politics, a, a, a total moral and uh, a issue collapse of a policy collapse of a party like this. And I mean, look, I finished this book about a year ago, and it's a pretty bleak portrait of the Republican Party, but I would have to conclude today I was overly optimistic. I mean, mm-hmm. never in my wildest dreams did I think that the Republican Party platform would be to support Donald Trump on whatever he believes. And that's what they've done. You allude to, in the book, kind of having these glimpses of realizations of this before Donald Trump. Um, And and you mostly tried not to think about it or uh, talk a little bit about the sort of mechanisms, what you do to sort of not not sort of have that realization grow. Yeah, that's a a really great and profound question. Um, I mean, I think most of us certainly I do go through life trying to avoid moral crises. Um, and just go through our lives. Um, I, I w- was always, uh, I liked the people I worked for, and I was always confident that uh, they were better than the, the people we were running against, I felt. And I worked on the side of the party that, you know, say, say in 99, I went to work for, for then Governor Bush. 
And uh, he famously uh, was evolving this theory of conservatism called compassionate conservatism, which and he got a lot of grief on the right at that time. They're saying, are you saying that conservatism isn't perceived as compassionate enough? And his answer pretty much was, yeah, you're right. I, that's, that's what I feel. So I think a lot of it was a feeling that we were on the right side of history, and there was almost an inevitability of the party. Plus, we did acknowledge failures, and I think this is really important to note. I mean, in many ways, this is all about race. In 1956, Eisenhower gets almost 40 percent of the black vote. 1964, Goldwater, it drops to 7%. <laughs> And it never comes back. So um, since 1964, the Republican Party has largely failed to attract African-Americans. Now, we used to admit that this was a huge failure. And I think that matters. Um, I think what you aspire to is important. Now the party is just – you don't ever hear about being a Big Ten anymore. And it's just really become comfortable with this white grievance. Um, so uh, – I guess when I woke up in the morning, I felt like I was writing, I was working for um, the side of the party that was the more positive and brighter side. And I think I probably, I was. Um, it, it just, I, I thought people would fight. They would fight for what they believed, that more than what has happened here. And I, I think that National political parties in our system should serve a circuit breaker function. And that never happened. Republicans never pulled a circuit breaker on Donald Trump. My guest is Stuart Stevens, veteran political strategist. His book, uh, all about his career as a strategist and where we are now, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. I- I'm curious, you know, you mentioned George W. Bush and certainly on immigration and other issues. Um, and, you know, he was in at least trying, you know, certainly trying to move in a different direction, certainly had uh, more of the Latino vote. Uh, but then you had those moments that were very um, cynical. And, and and one of them was certainly uh, right before the 2004 race, um, and and I guess it was Karl Rove's idea, pushing this federal marriage amendment and, um, you know, whipping it up for evangelicals. It was going to be a close race and coming out against gay marriage. And I think a lot of us, and we certainly see now, George W. Bush doesn't seem like he's a fervently anti-gay guy. And a lot of us thought probably personally he wasn't even opposed at the time. And, right. you know, Ken Melman worked for him and he's... Uh, gay. So that was a moment where they just said, okay, we're going to do this. How did they sort of rationalize those kinds of moments where you couldn't admit that it wasn't just a cynical attempt? That You know well, what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean, and I've, I've thought about this. Uh, just to be clear, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this was Carl's idea. Uh, I was never part of any discussions over this. Um, I think it's worth remembering uh, how different that moment was. I mean, in 2008, every presidential candidate, Democrat and Republican, was against same-sex marriage. Um, right. 
and I think it's just extraordinary how, I mean, now we don't even talk about it anymore. It's not even an issue. It, it's really amazing, and I find it very hopeful. Um, well, for Democrats, yeah. it was something to try to avoid because this was a constituency within their party. For Republicans, it was, you know, it was almost getting back to how race was used, right? Oh, we could use this uh, to our advantage. I, listen, I, I, I'm not going to defend that. Um, I, I, I think it's regrettable. I, I suspect that you know, a, a lot of us feel that way. Um, and and uh, wish that that moment, you know, if you had that moment to do over, you would do it differently. Um, that's, that's really all I could say. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it was our finest hour. When you look at um, how other people now are um, responding to Donald Trump, maybe some people you know, maybe some that you don't know, but you kind of know that the kind of people, members of Congress, leaders in the party, and you see what they're doing, and you think back to, you know, where you were, where you'd have glimpses of this. Do you think they have glimpses of it? Do you think they know fully, like, this is a a nightmare, but we have to go through with it? What's going on in their heads? That is a fantastic question, because I have never had a conversation with a Republican office holder since 2015 who thought that Donald Trump should be president. Not one. And uh, they don't think that today, but they're still going along with it. So um, I think it's a combination of things. One is I think it's just cowardice. It's weakness. And uh, a fear of losing, which I find frankly, despicable. Um, you know, the, these politicians, they, they were handed this legacy of the greatest generation. I mean, people like my father, you know, was like hundreds of thousands of others. Spent three years in the South Pacific fighting, 28 island landings. Um, and that's their legacy. And courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the person in front of you is shot. And, and they don't have the courage to stand up to Donald Trump. So I think it's transactional. And I think what Donald Trump realized about the Republican Party is that it largely was filled with a lot of weak leaders and that he could come in and cut a deal with the party in the same way, you know, Tony Soprano would cut a deal. Uh, I'll give you the paving contract. I'll get the port. We'll split it up and we'll both be good. Um, I think that's what he did. So everybody is negotiating with what they know is wrong. Uh, You know Donald Trump shouldn't be president, but okay, maybe I'll get tax cuts. Maybe I'll get a judge I like. Um, And, you know, I I think it's – Donald Trump to me is like segregation. And George Wallace, he actually did some good stuff as governor. He passed free textbooks. But nobody's remembered as the free textbook George Wallace guy. You're just the George Wallace guy. And I think all these Republicans, they're just going to be remembered as the Donald Trump crowd. And, well, and that get, it gets back to what you were saying uh, earlier and what you what you say in the beginning of the book, that you, you thought this party had all these values, but it really didn't. Donald Trump realized that and, and realized, OK, no, these people 
will just want to make a deal. They don't really care about any of these I issues. think you're, yes, I think that's exactly right. And it's an incredibly depressing conclusion to reach if you've spent a lot of years working in the party. So I mean, I've likened it to watching a friend drink themselves to death. It's very, you, very yeah, sad yeah. to me. You um, said that you finished the book a year ago and you feel like it's even gotten worse. Uh, certainly looking at the convention, looking at the platform, not even being written, just saying it's right. complete alle- allegiance to Donald Trump. Uh, it's a fear of pledge. <laughs> what else have you been noting of the, the, the couple of nights of the convention that, that just jarred? Well, look, I, I, find, I find what happened with Nikki Haley who I think is a person who wants to had real promise, um, for her uh, to get up. I mean, last week, the Republican Senate under Rubio, the, the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, concluded that, yes, Russians did help Donald Trump and that this, this was uh, a reality. It's not a hoax. It happened. Whether or not there was formal collusion or not is a separate legal issue. And here, you know, she gets up. She doesn't even mention it. I mean, she's U.N. ambassador. She had the same position that Jean Kirkpatrick had. And she, she doesn't even talk about it. And, you know, the Republican Party, I, I think, truly played an important role in looking at foreign evil, as the Soviet Union was evil, and calling it for what it was. When Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, it, 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 was a, it helped. It helped end the Cold War. Um, now we say, we said words could change the world, man. Now we say, well, it's just Trump. He just talks. They're only words. It doesn't matter. Um, just the, the utter hypocrisy. You have Pam Bondi, former uh, Attorney General of Florida, up there railing against nepotism on the night that Tiffany, that three Trumps are speaking. I mean, and, and the use of the <laughs> White House. The use of the White House is illegal. And what Pompeo is doing is illegal. It's not sort of illegal. It's illegal. They're stealing money. It's no different than if someone in the White House took a check that didn't belong to them and deposited it in their account. And there are people that are going to have worked their entire lives to pay taxes, to pay for the, what it costs Donald Trump to put on this little uh, facade of a show that he's putting on. And it's not like this hadn't occurred to other people. Like, Donald Trump's not the first president to wake up and go, you know, this is really like a cool set, the White House. I could go out in the Rose Garden and we could do this. Everybody knows this, but people haven't broken the law. They have a respect for the law. It's not like the first time everybody said that, you know, have a secretary of state, it'd be great to have them speak at the convention or do a I think Condi Rice, she was wildly popular, African-American brilliant woman. No, you don't break the law. And they have no respect for the law. Trump is a gangster. And the party has gone along with this and become just a, a party that is in service of a gangster mentality. And so, I think the period that we're entering now is the most dangerous period in American democracy since the Civil War. Trump will do anything to hold on to power, anything. And I'm the most anti-conspiracy person in the world. Um, 
but he's tested the Republican Party to see if they would stand up to him. And I think the conclusion he's come to is he can pretty much do anything if he can give them power. And I think it's going to be very, very tumultuous, dangerous period between now and when uh, hopefully Trump loses. If Trump loses, and I suppose we could talk about if he wins, <laughs> but uh, right. what happens uh, to the Republican Party? Nikki Haley is banking on, I guess, it all comes back and they do, I guess, I, maybe she'll go back to the old Russia policy. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering, what do they do? Do they think it's just going to go back? They'll go back to their old policies and everybody will come back? Well, that, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. I can't tell you how long it's going to take, but I can tell you what's going to happen. What's going to happen to the National Republican Party is what happened to the Republican Party in California. So California used to be the beating heart of the Republican Party, and it was our electoral citadel. Everything was based upon carrying California. Now the Republican Party is in third place in California, not second, third so that's what's going to happen to the Republican Party. And it's kind of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It's easier to, to say how it ends and how long it takes. It may take longer than we think. But people don't forget. I mean, this was the bet in, in uh, 1964. Okay, we went from 40% of black uh, support to 7%. But once the Civil Rights Act is passed, it's over. African Americans will come back to the party because of uh, basic conservatism they share, faith, patriotism, entrepreneurship. Yeah, but it never happened. And I don't mm -hmm. think that, that, that Hispanics are going to forget that Donald Trump called your father-in-law a rapist. And I don't think that uh, African Americans are going to forget that Donald Trump is in a cultural war with NASCAR, attacking NASCAR for saying that they've banned the Confederate flag. Right. I don't think people are going to forget this. Um, right. And here, here's a little statistic of Americans 15 years and younger, 15 years old and younger. The majority are non-white. Now, odds are really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And what does that say about the future of the Republican Party that right. is overwhelmingly and increasingly a white party? Right. It's like a stage four cancer warning. And that's what's <laughs> well, going to happen. I, I, I would love to talk to you more. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad we uh, got a chance to, to speak uh, at length here. Um, but uh, fascinating and a lot of insight. So I, I really appreciate your coming on the program. And, Listen, uh, love to come back anytime. Again. Absolutely love to have you back. Uh, the book, again, uh, is It Was All a Lie. Stuart Stevens is the author. Uh, it Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Uh, we're back. And by the way, you can follow Stuart Stevens at Stuart P. Stevens, Stuart with a U, on Twitter. We're back in a couple of minutes. The Michelangelo Seniorelli Show.